to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, we're in a series on, uh, on 1 John, and uh, we're going to be continuing this in. We're looking for some stuff that's coming. But first, I just want you to notice that Stephen sits. He brought his cheering section with him. That whole row has been just like supporting him this whole time. We're glad they're here, and we're glad he's here on staff with us. Um, in that passage that we looked at, uh, uh, John is going to hit some stuff, and it's very interesting how he does this because it's a very unique passage. But first, I want to remind you of where we've been uh, in 1 John. John started off by uh, telling them he's an eyewitness. He said, this is not secondhand, thirdhand. He says, I was an eyewitness. He, even, he uses that Greek word uh, for he saw, and the word is this idea that there's an image that's almost like you know, burned in your retina. If you, if you stare at a light too long, you see that light for a long time. And he says, I still see him. He's burned in my memory. I still see him like it was today. And he says, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And he says, and I'm bringing you this news that we can have fellowship now with the Father. We can have this relationship that is personal and intimate with the God of the universe. And he said it brings joy. It brings about the possibility of joy in our lives. And so the key to that then is he says that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. And he uses a double emphasis there. He says in him there is no darkness, none. He emphasizes it very strongly. God is light. And, and how does the light work? We talked about that, how the light works in our lives, and it kind of culminated with this, this concept that we confess. We confess. When, we, when we've sinned against God, then we come to him in confession. And, and remember, confess means to agree with someone, to agree with God. When I confess, I agree with God that this is wrong. All right? We, we tend to have these ideas of what, what's involved in that, but it is simply agreeing with God. This is wrong. And so John then kind of culminates that section by saying, so walk in the light, not in the darkness. The light exposes. The light shows you, it, it, it reveals true reality. Darkness hides. Darkness tricks. You stumble in darkness, he said, so walk in the light. Now, when we get to this passage, we run into something I think that's going on. John is a pastor, and he's writing this uh, very uh, pastorally. I don't even know if that's really a word. But he knows that when he's talking to people about these kind of things, it could be easy to get discouraged. It could be easy to go, man, I don't walk in the light very well. I'm slow to confess sometimes. I screw things up. I'm, I'm a loser. You know, it's, it's easy to get discouraged and to get down on yourself. Because you can start going, I know I'm not like that. My relationship with God doesn't seem that personal. There are times that I doubt that I'm close to him. Sometimes I'm not even sure if this whole thing is true. So it's, I, mean, I find it easy for me to doubt. I find it easy for me to discourage. See, John wants to address this because he knows that's what people are thinking. It's easy to start thinking about just quitting. It's easy to even fantasize about quitting, just to say, boy, if I was not a Christian, then I could do this, and I could do that, and I wouldn't have to worry about God, and I could do whatever I want. It's easy to start heading that way, to start feeling those things. So John steps in to reassure his flock. 
And also because things, things are, are about to get really deep in this passage, and so he's laying a foundation of encouragement to encourage them as he leads them into some difficult issues. And so this is like a brief interruption. And, and when you read, in fact, some, some is translated in some, they, they structure it like poetry because it looks very much like poetry. John doesn't usually do this, but it looks like he does this right here because he says six times in a row, I write to you because... I have a purpose here. You know, he's saying, don't get discouraged. I write to you because, I write to you because, I write to you because, six times. Two times he says, I'm writing to children. Two times he says, I'm writing to young men. Two times he says, I'm writing to fathers. And so it's structured like it's poetry. And so he's, he's giving this little interlude to deal with what he thinks they may be struggling with and knowing what's coming, things he needs to talk about. Now, let's talk about the elephant that's in the room. All right, Bob, children, young men, fathers. What about women and wives? Where are they in this? Are they excluded? Do they just, is, can they just skip this passage? No, you can't. You know, what did you think I was going to say? I'm a pastor. No, you can't skip the passage. No, no, no. All right? But see, here's the thing. John here is not talking about specific people. All right? He's talking about types of people. He's talking about stages of human life, and he's talking about stages of spirituality. That's what he's, the point he wants to get across here. Levels of maturity, child, young, elder. This is what he's talking about here. All right? So he's saying, uh, um, I don't know, I was trying to think of what, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a military brat, and so I have this amalgamation of accents because I lived in Maryland and New Mexico and Ohio and Northern Virginia and then Florida and then back to Northern Virginia and all this kind of stuff. And so I say things sometimes that people look at me funny. Like some of you have looked at me funny when you're leaving here, and there'll be a whole big group of you going out, and I'll say, see you guys. Later, guys. And I don't mean guys, just the guys. That means everybody. That is a more northern equivalent of y'all. All right? Bye, y'all. You know, you're not singling anyone out. And, and, and here, John is not talking to fathers. He's talking to elders. He's talking to spiritual fathers. He's talking to spiritual mothers. He's talking to young Christians babies, children, people who are young in the faith. He's talking to those who are in the fight. When he says young men, the strong, he says those that are in the fight, they're living for Christ in difficult situations. And he's talking about these stages that we're going in. That's what he's talking about. He's reassuring his readers and also reassuring us as some of his readers. And it can be all mixed together because sometimes I act like I'm a child and sometimes I may act like I'm trying to persevere through a fight and sometimes I act like I'm old. I'm older. And there's different phases involved there. It's all this. He's saying, I write this because. He says, I got three important ideas about living for God. Three important ideas about walking in the light. But above all of that, and this is the, man, here's the thing. I used to hate it when teachers would say this, and I'm going to say it. And I just, you know, if there's one thing you remember from today, right? Remember when they would say that? Remember when a teacher would say that? And I would always say, look, if I promise to remember that, can I just leave now? Because the rest is baloney, right? Well, remember this, it's a process. 
These stages can get all mixed up in your life and you can be be going through different ones. Why? Because spiritual growth is not some kind of a linear thing that we, you know, go like this. If you think about a person's spiritual, it's more like a bar graph. Some people really struggle with anger so the bar is very low coming up from the graph. Some people don't have very much anxiety so the bar is very high. They're doing really well in that area. Some people struggle with trust so the bar is low. They struggle with belief. The bar is low. Some people are really good in the bar. And so your life is really a bunch of bars representing parts of your life. In some areas you're doing well, in some areas you're struggling. That's why we can't judge other people. That's why I don't have a particularly huge problem with anger. So maybe somebody else does. I'm, oh man, if you love Jesus like I do, you wouldn't have that problem. Well, here's the baloney in that. That person may not be struggling with anxiety and I can get eaten up with anxiety. So they can look at me and say the same thing. So we're all strong or weak in different areas. And we can't judge other people because they may be strong where we're weak. I mean, they, and they're in a different stage of their walk. So it's all this process. And so we're going to look at three truths that correspond with maturity. Remembering that all of this is a part of our process. First truth, you have a secure position. And here it is. It's verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, I put it in a different translation there, also the New American Standard, uh, which is a very literal, very literal translation. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. All right? So what is he saying here? He's saying, first of all, your sins have been forgiven. That is, in the Greek, it's it's something that happened in the past, okay? The results are continuing even now and will continue on permanently. That's all in that Greek tense that he uses in that where we, you know, English is such a poor in some ways. He says, because your sins have been forgiven. Well, literally it's saying your sins were forgiven in the past. They are continually being forgiven and they are permanently forgiven in the future. That's all wrapped up in that. And so he's saying, you have this absolute assurance about your sins that they are forgiven. They're permanently forgiven. Now that gives us assurance. That gives us encouragement, especially in difficult times, especially when I sin. All right? Because when do I need the most encouragement? When I've blown it, when I sin, when I'm depressed, when I'm humiliated, when I'm ashamed of myself. He says there's a certainty here. You have a secure position, and it's on account of his name or for his name's sake. And the word that's translated account or for, for name's sake is a word that means value. It's a word that, that says this is a primary cause, that this is a source of power. It oftentimes is used also, they translate it account, because also it can be used as, as a financial statement that tells you this is what you have. All right? And so oftentimes, for me, I know, I can confuse things. And I want to say something I think is important, and I, and I, I, I don't want to say anything that's heretical, so hear me out on this. Because I think I'm forgiven because I repented. And people can mistakenly think that their great sorrow, shown in repentance, gets them forgiveness. And this assigns a value to forgiveness that Scripture does not assign. Because then it would be, my forgiveness is on account of my repentance, and that is not true. Now, we do need to repent. I want to say this. But it's drawn on his account. My repentance does not have anything to do. do, It's not on my account because my account is worthless. There's a zero balance. There's a negative balance. It's drawn on his account. 
And this is why this is so important. Because no one repents perfectly. No one repents completely. You always have mixed motives. You always have an imperfect attitude in your life. So that when you repent, you can never be sure that you are 100%. And so, we run into a problem. If I think it's based on my repentance, the value is based on my repentance, how much repentance does it take? What is the line that needs to be crossed before, bing, I get the forgiveness? You know, like, I'll repent, oh, God, and I, and I, I beat myself up, you know, and, and you can see there's people who believe in doing that. They believe in, in even physically beating themselves to show God how, how, how much they are repenting with their actions. They're trying to show that. And the problem is, how much is enough? Where's the line that I, I beat myself up and I humble myself and I've gotten across the line and God goes, okay, I'll give it to you. You see what the problem is? If it's based on me, I never know. I never know. And so then what happens? We get discouraged. And then we think we need to wallow in shame and wallow in sorrow until we cross that line. And then somehow we're back with God and our fellowship is restored. In my family, we used to have a dog. He was my daughter's ho my daughter Holly's dog, but parents, you know how that is? It's not her dog, it's your dog, right? She gets the dog, she's all thrilled, then she goes to college. I'm like, are you taking the dog? I can't take the dog. Crap. That's what I said. So my daughter named her dog George W. And that's a whole nother story. I'm not even gonna go into that one. But whenever he would do something bad, like we go away, uh, we go out, and we come back, and maybe, you know, he peed on the floor or something like that. He did something that he knew was bad. I'd walk in the door, and, I, and, and always when I'd walk in the door, George W. would be like, hey, everybody's home. I thought you were never coming back. I'm so happy to see you. Let's run. Let me lick you. What you taste like now? You've been eating somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. But if he's done something bad, like pee on the floor, then he has this look. And I'll show you. Here's a picture of his look. That's almost exactly. I'm serious. I would walk in the door, and there would be George W. on the floor, ears back, like that. Just like that. And he, he's not, he wasn't a smart dog because he would lay down and go, uh, next to, like, and then he would go, oh, uh, and I would go, George, and then he would slink off. I mean, he was a big dog like that one. He was a big dog, and he would slink off with his tail between his legs and his ears back and his, and he would go off, and he would go get under the dining room table and lay down and just look at you while you cleaned up his mess. So then I clean up the mess, and I say, okay, it's all done. It's over. It's okay. And he's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and off he would go. See, what's going on? We can be so much like that. We can be so much like that. We can say, God, I'm being, you see how sad I am, God? You see how sorry I am, God? <sighs> we can do that. And we think that somehow that's the quality of our repentance, and we think, I don't, I don't feel bad enough, so i got to feel bad for a little longer until I can 
feel like things are okay. And we look at our feelings and we say, I'm so miserable, I'm so sorry, God. Now, you see, here's the problem. This is the thing. This is why we get anxious and discouraged because we never know, when can I come out from under the table? We don't know what the line is. We don't know what the rules are. You can never be sure. And this is what, this is what John is addressing here. He's saying, why can you be, why is this assurance? Why can you be certain? Certain Because it's, it's on account of his name. It's drawn on his, his account. It's for his name's sake, not yours. Not yours. And this speaks to God's character. This speaks to who God is. This speaks to what God has done. And this is huge to them. You know, we talk about names, the Bible. It's such a huge thing, and it's not so big for us anymore. Um, I know we had five kids, and so with the first couple kids, you know, we were looking up what the name means. You know, we'll have a name, like somehow it'll influence our kid. And by about the fourth or fifth, we're like, I don't care, whatever. It just, uh, I don't care what it means. It's just what my wife wants, and we'll get that name and stick it on our kid, right? But, but, but in Scripture, names are huge. Names are so important. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 45, the other day we were talking about David and Goliath and David being a champion, being a representative. You're not supposed to be like David. David is the champion who does something for you, just like Jesus Christ did. And David says to Goliath, you, came against me, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He says, let me just remind you the name of who I, I'm coming from. And I'm the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So what is David saying there? David is saying, this is not about me. This has nothing to do with me. This is all about you and God. Now, you just defied you just defied God. You just mocked his name. So, you know, I, it, this is it for you, dude. You're going to die. And David even tells him, I'm, I'm going to cut your head off too, just to make sure, add insult to injury. He tells him, this is it, you know. Um, you, you're going to die for this because of what you said about the name of God, because names are so important. This is not on the screen. Let me read it to you. Uh, we looked at this a couple weeks ago in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. What's his name? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And John puts that on there. John sets a courtroom setting, a courtroom scene, and he says, your lawyer is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so he tells him, this, that's what's so important there. He names it. And he says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so repentance receives righteousness. It does not merit it. Okay? Just a very key distinction. Your repentance does not merit righteousness. Your repentance simply receives the righteousness that is in Jesus' account, and it is given to you. And so then it becomes, where's the line? Where's the line? How much repentance is needed? Any repentance at all. You don't have to figure out how much repentance I need to have. You just need to confess, agree with God. Repent of it. Now, things may be going really well in your life right now, but I'm telling you, when things get really tough, this is important. When you get involved in some dark things sometimes and you fall, this is really important because you're forgiven on account of his name. 
and to try to work up the proper humility, to try to work up the proper shame for forgiveness just insults God. Because your sins and your shame were paid for on the cross. You don't need to work it up. So, and, and I know sometimes, you know, uh, you, you see people or they talk about uh, humbling yourself to the point that, you know, I read a guy a while back was saying he had to humble himself to a certain degree for God to forgive him. And, and, and I, I can't help but disagree with that. That sounds great. But when you feel like you've got to lower yourself, you've got to beat yourself up, you've got to do something like that to get God's forgiveness, what are you saying? You're saying, God, I don't want your charity. I'm going to earn this one. And that's an insult to God. You're devaluing his name. So your position is secure. John is saying, I want you to understand something. You may, you may, I've been talking about sinning and not sinning and dealing with sin and all that stuff. And that may make you feel, that may make you feel kind of discouraged. Like I'm just not doing very well. I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm struggling. I don't understand. This doesn't sound like me. And he says, I want you to understand one. I want you to understand this. Your position is secure. In Jesus Christ, your position is secure. The second point is you have a power within you. And this is from the verse. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right? Let me just talk about the evil one just for a second, because this is one of those things that's not real popular to talk about in our day. Everybody gets real kind of, oh, you know, and then they say there's this, there's this force out there that's evil, you know, the dark side, the, all that kind of stuff. No, no. There's a living evil in this world. It is alive. He is alive. And he's named here as the evil one. Now, in the Greek, there's two words for wickedness. All right, real quick Greek lesson. Um, Kekos is, is kind of this word for evil in the abstract, a very general word. Uh, poneros is is an evil that is in active opposition to good. And there's a real key thing. It's, it's, I use an old word here in the, in the translation at the bottom, pernicious. Pernicious is a great word because pernicious means something that kills you and it won't give up till you're dead. It just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming to kill you, all right? So, Kekos is evil in general. Paneros is, is a pernicious evil and active opposition to good, an extreme evil that won't quit corrupting. So a man who's called a, uh, a Kekos man uh, would be someone who's going to perish and they're content to perish in their own corruption. They're, they're doing evil, but it's just themselves. It's just, they're just on their own. A Poneris man is someone who seeks to drag others with him in his downfall. And so here the word is poneris, the evil one. Satan, he says, he, he's, a, he's a pernicious evil. He, he wants it to spread and he won't quit. He wants others to experience the faith that he knows is coming. He knows the only way he can hurt God is to drag other people down with him. That's the only possible pain that he thinks he can inflict upon God is to drag others down with him into it. And so it's this evil that corrupts, it's persistent, and it hates what it corrupts. And so, here he says, I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. 
I like this phrase, the word of God lives in you. Oftentimes in scripture, the word of God living in someone in the spirit in someone is used very similarly. Um, Jesus says this, the, uh, the, the spirit is the spirit of truth. He's the comforter. He guides you to truth. In Ephesians 5, just a quick overview, Ephesians 5, when you allow the spirit to work in your life, Paul says, then it, it shows itself. You start speaking to one another. You start singing to one another songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and he says, you have a thankful heart when you allow the Spirit to work in your life. Then you go to Colossians 3. It's almost the exact same passage. But he says, when the Word is abiding in your life, you start teaching one another. You start singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you have thankfulness in your heart. So they're linked. They're very close. They're almost the same thing. Scripture tells us we're born by the Spirit. It also tells us we're born by the Word. It tells us we're sanctified by the Spirit and we're purified by the Word. In 2 Peter 1.4, there's a very interesting verse that says you are partakers of the divine nature. And what's my point here? My point is we're dealing with eternal things, so this can be difficult. But there's a truth here. When you become a Christian, God implants in you, in essence, in a sense kind of, his DNA. You become a new creature. A process is started. You're regenerated. And there is a power there keyed into who he is that can change you. It is a process, but the Spirit of God is in you. You share something with God. And the Word abides in you. And the Spirit uses the Word to illuminate things that are going on in your life that need to be changed. This process, this abiding in you. He's saying, this is why you're strong. And oftentimes we fail to realize the incredible power that resides in us, the incredible potential that is in us because of our birthright as followers of Jesus Christ. Peter calls it an imperishable seed that has been implanted in your soul, and it is growing. So that even if you're struggling with something that seems impossible to change, John says, never give up. Never say, this will never change. It may feel that way, but that's not the truth. A seed has been planted in you and it is growing and it has incredible power. Your DNA has been altered. We think that we'll never change, but we forget that the Spirit lives in us. And we, when we think we will never change, we are devaluing His power. So confess and keep going. Don't quit. This is what John's saying here. Because Christianity is not hoping that I'm forgiven. I remember talking to somebody and they were talking about the the Lord and I said, so, I mean, you made that decision. Your sins are forgiven. And he said, well, I hope so. And I'm like, well, you don't have to hope so. You can know so. Because Christianity is knowing my sins are forgiven. It's not deciding to do things to be a better person. It's something that has come from the outside and now it is inside me and it's messing with my code. It's getting all matrixy, right? It's messing with me from the inside and it's working its way out. And so you're changing. You are changing fundamentally at your core. And being a Christian, because of that, being a Christian means life often gets messy. And that's because it's not my power that's making things happen. It's not my planning that arranges things anymore. God is working. And he doesn't always do things the way I think he should but he's always good. And so he's saying, you are strong. Often we forget the power that's ours in Christ, the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word of God. He says, because of that, you are strong. 
So, first, you have a secure position. Secondly, you have a power within you. Thirdly, you have a relationship with God. All right, and that's verse 14. And the, uh, there's, there's, he says everything twice here. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. It's very interesting to me as I look through Scripture, the different ways that God relates to his people. He relates sometimes as a father. He relates sometimes as a mother. He relates sometimes as a sibling, as a brother, as a sister. He relates sometimes as a spouse, as a lover. But it's a relationship. It's always a relationship. There's talking. There's listening. There's loving. There's sharing. There's crying. There's laughter. There's anger. It's a relationship. And this is very important. John wants them to understand something. He wants them to understand. You're secure. He wants them to understand. There's this incredible power. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. Lives in you. And then he wants them to see this is a relationship. This is a relationship. And relationships can take time. It's a process. They take time to develop. We're talking to God. We're listening to God. And as you become more mature, you see that aspect more and more. And this process, those things, as I said, they often overlap. And when you're a child, you tend to focus more on yourself because you're a child. And you see that in your life sometimes. And God says, I want you to move past that. When our kids were little, one of our kids, um, one of our boys, he couldn't sleep one night. And so he crawled out of bed and he came into our room at like 2.30 in the morning. And um, I was sleeping, facing out. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but it's just like I'm kind of half asleep, half awake, and I'm thinking, there's something wrong. I just sense that something, you know, usually I think it's a monster or something like that, but I sense there's something else here. And so I opened my eyes, and my son was like three inches from my face, just looking at me. It freaked me out. I was like, ah, ooh, ah. you know, it just, it, just, it just totally freaked me out. You think you wake up out of sleep, and you open your eyes, and there's a face right in front of you. And that's kind of a goofy little face, so it's, it's even scarier that way. And so I'm like, ah. I said, dude, you freak me out. Don't ever do that. And he's like, daddy. And he's like George again. Daddy, I can't sleep. So what? He's focusing, he's totally focused on, he almost gave me cardiac arrest. And he's like, oh, dad, sorry that you wet your pants. I didn't mean to do that. You know, he, it doesn't even occur to him that way. He's just totally like, I can't sleep. And I'm like, now I can't sleep. Thanks, because I got enough adrenaline in me right now, you know, to, to do something terrible. Right? See, it doesn't occur to him that he's disturbing me. But he's a kid. He's a child. We act that way sometimes. We think it's all about us. And what do I do? What do I say? Do I say, stop being a little kid? No, because he's a little kid. I'm not going to say that. So I just kind of said, okay, buddy, listen, <laughs> next time, make some noise when you come in the room. Okay, do that for me, will you? Okay, now, uh, let's go in your room. Let's get a book. Let's see what we can do. And uh, I'll read with you and see if you can go back to sleep. I didn't say, no, you little brat. You know, you scared me to death. No. I said, no. I, I didn't act like you shouldn't be doing this because he's a kid. That's how kids act. Kids think of themselves. They can't help it. 
They just focus on themselves. And my relationship with him dictated my response. It dictated my willingness to put up with the shenanigans. And, with, and, and God does that with us. He does it with us because sometimes we act like little kids. <clears throat> the disciples, Jesus had, I mean, Jesus had to do that all the time, right? I mean, just a couple times, think about this. The, the disciples, get those little kids away from Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, bring them to me, you dopes, you know? I don't know if he said, I don't know if dopes is in the Greek, but I'm sure he thought it, all right? They say, oh, this Syrophoenician woman, she's making all this noise. She's annoying us, Jesus. Tell her to go away. And Jesus is like, no, I want to hear what she has to say. They're like, what? That didn't occur to them. They're in the boat. Well, we're going to sink, Jesus. Don't you even care that we're about to die? You know, it didn't even occur to them to say, Jesus, you're about to die. They didn't think of that because they were just thinking of me. Like, Jesus, don't you care? I'm about to drown. Don't you care? And Jesus says, man, you guys, got, you guys got teeny faith. You're just, all right, let me take care of it. You know, it's almost like Jesus said, let's go in the room. I'll get a book. I'll read to you for a while. We'll straighten this out, right? He takes care. Why? Because they acted over and over like children. And so we have these three. I'm writing to you little children. I'm writing to you the young men, young women. I'm writing to you fathers, mothers, mature Christians. That's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to all of you. Why? Because in this room, we're all kinds of different people, and we all get jumbled up. Some of you are much more mature than I am in one area, and I'm more mature than you are in another area, and it probably has nothing to do with age. It's just the way you are. It's just the way I am. It's just the way our walk with God is going. All right? So he's talking to all of us, and he's understanding that for all of us, we'll get all these three things mixed up at different times in our lives because it's a process. And he has patience with the disciples like little children, and he has patience with us in the same way because it's a relationship. And the relationship dictates how he deals with us. And John is encouraging his flock now. He's telling them, you have a secure position. You are secure. Your sins were forgiven in the past. It's covering you now, and you will be covered permanently forever. He says, you have a power within you. Your DNA has been changed. The Spirit is in you now. The Word of God starts to abide in you. And he says, and you now have a power, the power to change from the inside out. We all know how easy it is, especially when you have little kids. It's easy to change them on the outside. It's easy to make them wear nice clothes. And I used to think that was important, that my kids looked so good going to church. And then one day, my wife and I just looked at us and said, this is stupid. Our kids are like, they, they like to be little vagabonds. Let's let them do it. Let's just let them do it. Let them be who they are. You have power within, you have a relationship with God. The God of the universe loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. He's incredibly concerned. And when you wake up in the middle of the night and you wake him up too, he's not angry. He's not upset. He loves you and he wants to help you. He wants to be there for you in your most difficult of times. That's the God we have. This is what John is telling them. Because, it, because next week we're going to get into some difficult issues that John is going to hit him with. But he says, before we get there, let's talk about the important things so that you know what your foundation is. You know where you stand with God. And as a loving pastor, 
He, he, he tells them, he warns them, he assures them, he encourages them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that is applicable to our lives. It was written 2,000 years ago, God. And it applies to us now just as well as it applied back then. And we thank you for this word that is powerful, that is sharp, and that it teaches us, that it warns us exhorts us. Help us to be willing to be taught and warned and exhorted. Help us to allow your spirit to work in our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, help us to walk in the light so that we see reality and this world for what it really is. And as we do that, Lord, we represent you as your ambassadors. We thank you for that privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take an offering, and as they come forward, I just want to say that uh, if you're a guest here, we're not asking you to give. You know, we're, we're thrilled that you're here. And-